Stay tuned for the organic farm stand coming right up. Corn in the fields, and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is sure they come. I work for the union, cause she's so good to me. Welcome to WPKN's Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month from 12 to 1. My name is Richard Hill. I'm sitting here all by myself in the studio. What happened to everybody? I don't know. Well, actually, Laura Mano is under the weather. Chris Ferrio is MIA. Said he would be here, so I'm hoping he will come. And we, we do have our itinerant farmer, fantastic source of all kinds of inspiration and information, Steve Mano sitting there in the uh, clover at Massaro Farm. Steve, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Glad to be here with you. Yeah, pleasure to have you. Fantastic. And it's going to be a really interesting day today because we have a special topic we're going to be dealing with, and that is the Farm Bill, which uh, is coming up for, I believe, a final vote uh, in September. Is that correct, Steve? I think that's right. It's a long process. It comes every five years. Uh-huh. And I think, you know, uh, our guests, uh, Alex, will be able to get into some more details as we go forward. Yeah. Great. All right. Yes, indeed. We're going to get the uh, get into the weeds with <laughs> with uh, our guest, uh, Alice Rundy, who will be joining us from the National Organic Coalition. She'll be coming on the air at about 1230. But before we do that, we're going to be speaking with not only Steve Munno with the Small Farms Report, but then, because it is the first Thursday of the month, we'll be speaking with Vincent Kay. The Honey Bee Report will be coming at us today on this chilly May day, I should say. Moved into May here, first of uh, first show of May. So, my name, did I mention my name is Richard Hill? I can't remember. <laughs> Chris is here to remind me. Um, I don't know. I got here late, so. Um, but well, you, you are Richard Hill. Well, right, thank you. And um, there you go. It's that, it's, since you're late, you, you can't scold me for uh, not remembering. Uh, now, uh, let us move directly to Steve Munno on, at Masara Farm with the Small Farms Report. Steve, we visited the farm last uh, Friday, if I'm not mistaken, and had a beautiful uh, afternoon there uh, romping through the different fields, checking out some of the high tunnels. Tell us what's going on and what we can expect in the next couple of weeks uh, as this strange spring unfolds. Sure, sure. Well, hopefully we will experience um, 
a little bit of warmer weather and sunshine like we had in the beginning of April when it was warm and sunny. Uh, but it's you know, 53 degrees and overcast. We've had far too much rain. You know, each of the last two weekends brought a lot of rain uh, over three inches this last weekend here and, and over four inches the weekend before. And, you know, our we expect those amounts uh, per month. That's kind of our historical average is three to four inches per month, a, a little more in the, in the wetter months, a little less in the drier months. Uh, but getting, you know, nearly eight inches over a 10-day period means things are wet on the farm. Uh, and so we could use some, some sun some clear skies to help dry us out a bit as uh, this is our planting season. So, you know, whether you are on a farm or you've got a garden, this is a great time to get things in the ground. Um, so over the last few weeks, you know, we, we started getting things like our, our greens and herbs, lettuce, dill, cilantro, uh, collard greens, kale, broccoli, uh, some turnips, we've sown radishes. You know, we're getting lots of those things in the ground, but we're going to wait for it to get a little bit warmer for things like cucumbers and squash and tomatoes and peppers and eggplants. Are uh, We've got them in the greenhouse. They're big enough to go out. And if today we're in the 70s and the 10-day forecast said, you know, warm weather ahead, I, I might be willing to put them in the ground. Um, but we've got to watch out for nighttime temperatures, too. We've had some of these nights dip into the low 40s. And these, these heat-loving crops, you know, even if it's warm during the day, they, they don't want those cold nights. So... Uh, yeah, this first week of May is usually when I'm looking at that 10 day to see is, is it safe in the next week to put some of these warmer crops that might just be ready to go out uh, into the ground or not. And so, so right now the answer is no. So uh, we'll wait another week before we start putting these things in. And then because we've got um, successions of planting, meaning we'll, we'll plant, you know, cucumbers kind of every three to four weeks and summer squash and zucchini every three to four weeks. Uh, the, you know, we've got a next planting in June and July, but for the for for May, you know, if I could get it in the first week, if it was warm and looked like the forecast was warm, I, I would do it. But for right now, if you're ending your garden, I'd say maybe maybe wait a few days because um, it's still a bit chilly for some of those um, heat loving crops. What, how does the uh, moisture affect the the planting issue? Is it really prevent you from? Uh, getting into into the soil, I, I'm not sure if you're using vehicles in the fields now, uh, but I've heard uh, in the past that that can be a factor. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, you know, on on our scale, when we're using a tractor in some parts of the farm, um, if the ground's wet and the soil's wet, and you you drive over with the tractor, you know, you're you're comp- you're going to compact the soil, and and if it's really wet like this, you, you might make a mess with mud and or you know, uh, maybe sink a tire in too low. So you really don't want those things to happen. So you've got to be mindful of always, uh, you know, the work you're doing in the garden or on the farm uh, with the soil moisture. Um, so because you don't really want to compress it. You know, our, our soil needs uh, needs to have space. We need to have pore space for air to travel, for oxygen to get to the roots, and then for water to travel through that pore space and get to our, you know, and our roots to be able to move through and then gather up uh, water and nutrients. Uh, but when it gets really wet and that soil is fully saturated, that the pore space is filled. And then if you drive on it, you're going to compress it and compact it. And then you're going to you know, damage your soil aggregates and you're going to compress that space. And then, you know, then it's going to be harder uh, for roots to move around and grow and for, for um, you know, for our fungal life, our bacterial life to travel through there. So you can really do a lot of damage if you're driving over, you know, or using implements uh, in the soil when it's wet. Um, so you, you you know you need 
some soil moisture, but when you're fully saturated, like we are on our farm right now, you know, other farms, maybe if they're sandier soil or they've got better drainage, they, they might be fine, but you got to be careful uh, in wet conditions, driving or, or using any of your, your tools. What so about, it does, it yeah. does impact us. What um, about walking on, on the soil? Does that have a similar effect? Lesser, but similar? Um, yeah, certainly less. You know, we are, you know, uh, people walking around, uh, you know, not making the same kind of impact as, as a vehicle would. Um, and maybe if you're able in your garden, you know, stick to your paths. And you might want those those regularly trodden paths to be, you know, firm for your use. And maybe you've got a layer of chips on them or some fabric down and or maybe you've got stone in your paths. Um you know, and that that can be fine. If you were to be repeatedly walking on your garden beds, it would have an impact. Um, so, you know, generally we try to um, keep our feet out of there. Sometimes you need to get in there to do to to do the work, uh, but we do we, we want to be mindful with our feet too. But they're not going to do the same kind of damage. Um, and so we're moving around our tunnels. You know, we walk around there and we have kind of the the path space in between our beds. Uh, that's one of the reasons we have our tunnels is that we have reliable growth. You know, we can control the conditions to a certain degree. Uh, we're not adding heat in there, um, but, you know, we can keep that, that seven, eight inches of rain that we got over the last two weekends. It's, it's, it's protected from that. So, um, you know, we have already have a, a couple of crops of lettuce planted in them so that we're you know certain that um, whatever those conditions are in the spring, we've got some protected space to grow. Um, so that's been a, that's been one of the reasons why we've um, put up a few more, you know, over the years is that it, it gives us a reliable production by by early mid June, um, regardless of how you know what happens in late April and, and early May with the weather. Um, so that's been really helpful for us. Um, but but yes, we do want to be careful with our vehicles and our our implements and um, finding those dry windows. Uh, or windows where it's not o- completely saturated or oversaturated um, to prepare our beds or, or do any tasks that we might do with our tractor and implements on the field. Yeah, so Steve, maybe you could talk a little bit about the issue of soil amendments and when those are added to the soil. And is this the time to do it? Is it too late to do soil testing? And you know, how, how should people navigate this period? Yeah, um, this is a great time to put down some soil amendments. Um, you know, we we tend to do lots of, uh, uh, you know, a good bit of pre-planted um, soil amendments. So right before we plant, you know, our, our might be one of the last stages of our preparation is putting down the, the soil amendment. Um, in fact, just before coming in for, for the radio show here, I was uh, unloading some soil amendments. We got a, a delivery from, from Fedco, Organic Grower Supply, you know, a pallet full of materials, um, things like gypsum that will include, you know, uh, ahead of our tomatoes uh, plantings. It sort of helps with the calcium level um, in there. The, they, they sort of like the, the gypsum in there. Um, uh, we get a mixed fertilizer called Turbo Tuber. You know, it's an organic mix of, of, of sort of a blend of fertilizers specifically formulated for potato growing. Um, so these are things that we put down in the beds um, prior to planting and sort of lightly scratched them in right before planting. Uh, so it's one of the last steps that we do. Or if we're using any kind of mulch, if we're using a landscape fabric or a plastic mulch, or in the case of the potatoes, we use leaves uh, as a leaf mulch, you know, we're going to put that fertilizer down uh, right before we um, 
put the mulch down. So once the mulch is there, we won't be able to access the soil and the rest of our fertilizer will go in through our irrigation system. So we'll have drip tape and we can add in, you know, a liquid kelp um, or liquid fish emulsion, you know, in with the water when we're watering the crop. So it's getting a little bit of of, of feed um, along with the water throughout the season. So yes, this is a great time in your garden. Uh, The only thing you need to be careful about, as we've mentioned before, is, is manure. You know, so if you've got manure as a fertilizer, you need to have time between uh, when you put the manure down and then when you harvest, because you don't want to have any pathogens that could be, um, you know, entering into your food and your food system uh, that could harm you later. So there's a 90-day rule and 120-day rule, depending on what your what the crop is. So, um, but basically, that's why a lot of a lot of farms historically put manure down in the fall. And it gives you, you know, prior to your spring planting, um, so there's plenty of time um, for the soil to to bring in that and digest and absorb that manure um, prior to planting and harvesting. So uh, this isn't the time to put down manure unless unless it's just to generally amend your your field and not prior to planting. So, but pre-planting, this is a great time to put down lots of different soil amendments depending on your your crop that you're trying to grow. So, Steve. Um... I get something um, from uh, one of the big box um, garden supply places that uh, it's it's composted cow manure. Is that would you consider that safe, or you still want to give that some time also? So that's that's safe. It should be safe, you know, and always you know read and look at it. But if it's been composted, it's been it's gone through the process where the pathogens have been destroyed. So by by uh, having the, by going through the composting process, it's you know it's been at a at a high heat level and it's killed off um, the pathog- any potential pathogens. So it's been approved uh, for sale and for use. So we similarly use a, a composted chick- chicken manure here, and and we're good to to put that down without any restriction on time. Um, but if you know if you've got a horse farm in your neighborhood or somewhere, you know there's lots of horses in Connecticut. Uh, you know if you're near one, I know you know sometimes they're looking to offload some of their manure. You don't want to dump it fresh in your garden and then put you know your broccoli plants or your lettuce plants in it. Uh, you know without having that distance in time. And so that's where I'd really say if you've got a an, an uncomposted manure or raw manure, or, you know from a from a local farm, you, you need to have time between. Um, putting that fertilizer down, that manure down, and planting and harvesting. So um, also with with the amendments you're talking about that you use, um, obviously because the soil is so wet now, you can't mix them in. So basically you just, you're applying them to the top and then mixing them in when the soil dries out a little? Yeah, that's, that's definitely one of the challenges right now. When it's so saturated, you can't really get that mix in. But um, yeah, you know, typically the fertilizers... Um, you know, you're not getting them necessarily too deep. Um, sometimes if you're planting, um, you know, if you're taking your tomato plant or you're, you're planting a squash plant or something, sometimes you can put, you know, you make your little hole that you're going to put it in and you can take, the, you know, a little quarter cup of the fertilizer and put it at the bottom of the hole. Um, so you can choose to fertilize plants individually in that manner. Um, but otherwise, you can spread it in the bed, you know, understanding that, uh, while it's great to put it in that one hole, and that's a fine technique to use, you know, the roots are, of that plant are eventually going to spread out, and so it's great to have nutrients available throughout that bed. Um, so, uh, you know, you want to concentrate it, you know, in the area where they're doing their main growth, but, um, you know, you need water and nutrients 
throughout their root zone that they're going to travel in order for them to thrive. So yes, we tend to, you know, for us, it's um, either a walk behind spreader or a hand spreader, or, or we have a spreader on the back of the tractor that we can drive and it'll drop um, the fertilizer, you know, throughout our bed. And then we scratch it and we have a tool, whether it's a hand tool, like a, you could even use a rake, you know, just a rake and sort of scratch it into that top level. We're not, we're not trying to, um, you know, mix it in all the way deep, you know, turning a shovel over, but it's just sort of scratching it into the surface. So it's not going to then, you know, um, roll off with the rain or something. We do want it to be incorporated into the soil. Could you say, could you say a word, uh, or two about, uh, soil testing and we talk about it a lot, but it's always good to remind people about that, where they can get their soil tested and, uh, the importance of that. Yeah. So, you know, we can say that various fertilizers are good for your soil or good for a particular crop, um, but they're only good for it if your soil needs it. So, you know, we can, uh, if your soil is, um, you know, has all the, the potassium and phosphorus that it needs and you're adding more potassium and phosphorus, you know, through your compost or through a particular fertilizer and you get too high a level, well, then it's no longer good for your crop or your soil or, and, and maybe there could be downstream impacts, uh, you know, if you get any runoff, depending on how or where you're growing and entering our, you know, uh, groundwater system. So you do need to be careful about putting down any kind of fertilizer or soil amendment. And that goes for our, our lawns, too. You know, this whole industry dedicated to uh, spreading fertilizer on your lawns. It's questionable whether that's necessary at all. You know, I always like to advocate for our lawn here. We've never put a fertilizer down. I've got a wonderfully green lawn. We mow and leave the uh, grass clippings right there. But to your question of where you can get the Connecticut, uh, where you can get your soil test done, the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, you know, is a great place. You can take a bag of soil there. Uh, they've got instructions on their their website. So, um, you know, through ct.gov. But if you're going to look at, um, you know, if you're going to look it up, the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station, um, you can drop off at their, you know, locations. Um, uh, they are in New Haven and they're in, I want to say, Windsor. Um, and then also Yukon Extension has soil testing services. So you can, you know, mail in, uh, you know, to them. And each of the Yukon Extension and, and the Ag Experiment Station on their website will have instructions on how to do a soil test, a little list to fill out to say what you want them to test for. But generally they do a basic test and they'll, they'll tell you about, you know, what's in your soil, what type of soil you've got, what they're seeing your pH level, which is really important. Um, and, um, you know, they'll give you a basic, uh, maybe, uh, you know, instruction on what you should do based on what you're trying to grow. You know, if you're growing mixed vegetables and flowers, it's going to be a maybe different, um, instruction or recommendation if you're growing trees and shrubs. So that's all part of their brochure and list. So, you know, UConn, UConn has a service, uh, Ag Experimentation has a service, and then there are other labs through places like Cornell or University of Massachusetts. So there's, there's lots of options out there, um, but I would say our, our Connecticut services do a good job. Uh, you I, can find them easily, easily on the web. And I think most of those are free. Is that, is that not the case? Um, they can be free or a small cost. Uh, mm -hmm. Right. And the one in New Haven is uh, pretty conveniently located near downtown, but it's, I think it's Huntington Street or Huntington Avenue. But yeah, yep, look, yep, not far from downtown. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, um, let me see. Do we have any, I, one more question for you, uh, Steve. I know I know you don't 
uh, specialize in fruit shrubs at Masaro. Uh, but I, I've been babying my raspberry and blueberry. Actually, I have a currant bush, too, which is already producing little tiny berries. I can't believe it. It seems like it's too early for that. But I did what, what I did, uh, I guess, in dead of winter was I, I trimmed them all back. I cut back all, I, you know, I cut off all the uh, sort of extended branches and sort of cut them down to sort of what seemed to be like a medium sort of level. And they, they're all leafing out very nicely. I, I have a blue, I have you know, several blueberry bushes and a couple of raspberry bushes. And I, I wonder if you know whether they, those are both acid-loving uh, shrubs. I know blueberry, I'm pretty sure is, but I'm wondering if the same obtains for, um, for raspberry. Uh, they do, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think a lot of people know, or you know, blueberries have a reputation for liking that um, acidic soil, and a lot of Connecticut soils are, you know, naturally acidic. So that's a you know pH level in you know five, five and a half, neutral. Most vegetables, you know, want to be in the in the closer to neutral six to seven range, uh, but uh, raspberries do, I believe, prefer it to be a bit more acidic. Uh, you know, not quite as acidic uh, as blueberries. Uh, maybe five and a half to six, as opposed to um, you know that that five pH level. But yes, they can they can handle some some more acidic soil. All right. Well, we yeah, we're going to hope for the best on uh, our uh, berry production this year. It uh, was uh, challenged very badly challenged by the the drought last year, but we're hoping for the best this year. Well, I think it's time to bring in Vincent K. Is it not? Yes, yeah. it is. And Vincent is on the line. He is on one, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, so, all right, Vincent, thank you so much for joining us. I'm here. I'm here. <laughs> well, yeah. Great to have um, you. Where are you? Where are you uh, plodding through the fields well, today? We're back in New Haven currently, okay. but uh, at home base. But uh, we started at six this morning, uh, moving bees out of the orchards. We've had them in the orchards for pollination. We rent. Um, hundreds of hives for pollination uh, to some of the, the uh, orchards in the area. And um, we also moved some bees uh, into blueberry fields this morning. So it is the time for um, pollination of blueberries. Uh, certain varieties do, do take uh, honeybees uh, a little bit more readily than, than others. But, um, yeah, as we talked the last time uh, a month ago, we were all um, – <laughs> in trepidation of the hot weather and and for good reasons as as you can see we've had really cold rainy weather and so um that that hot spell brought the uh, apple blossoms and peach blossoms and pear blossoms um nearly to uh, bloom and so the orchard grower said okay let's get let's get the bees in here and hmm. so we we scrambled like heck and so far knock on wood the trucks haven't broken down and you know, we haven't broken down and uh, we haven't had any hives fall off the trucks and, you know, all the things that can happen, getting stuck in the mud and uh, other things. But um, things have gone pretty smoothly, like I said, knock on wood. But uh, we scrambled and we got the bees in there. And then sure enough, sure enough, here it came, the cold nights and uh, a near frost. And uh, I think some of the peach growers lost a good part of their crop this year uh, to cold. And uh, it may have happened back in in that Christmas cold, that, that solstice cold we had, that really bitter cold. 
uh, may have also damaged some of the uh, the trees themselves. But um, things looked pretty good, and they still look good. But it, you know, the pollination has been spotty at best, um, as people probably know. I mean, you in a commercial orchard, you have large blocks of say one variety of apples, and then in between they'll have crab apples or another block of another another variety. And these things need to be cross-pollinated. So the insects, honeybees and others, um, need to go from one uh, blossom to another of a different variety. And that cross-pollination is what sets the fruit and fertilizes the blossom. So um, certain blossoms in the orchards have opened. Others are still tight, somewhat open. And again, you know, to coordinate this dance, <laughs> if you would, uh, between... Uh, all the different blooms opening, you really need to have a block of warm weather, which we have not had. So um, the orchard guys, um, people in charge have said, okay, we've had our little windows here and there. Hopefully that's enough. But they're usually um, more concerned with commercial spraying and stuff like that uh, for fun fungus and mildews and things like this. So we get the bees out of there. So we've been moving bees, uh, like I said, since six this morning and Last night we moved bees and uh, we're scheduled tomorrow to move a large chunk out as well. So that's where we're at. And um, it's been very wet. Um, you know, we're feeding bees um, like crazy and we don't like it because it's expensive, but we also don't like dead bees. So, um, you know, you really have to, uh, being involved with animal husbandry, um, kind of understand the needs of the critters that you're taking care of. And, um, you know, we like to have, you know, bees flying uh, in the warm weather, bringing in pollen and nectar. And that stimulates the queen to lay lay a lot more eggs also, which is, is, is where, where it's all at as far as we're concerned. But, you know, when they can't get out and, and they're trying to incubate the eggs they have, they're going through food like crazy. And that nest, again, is anywhere from 90 to 95 degrees inside that hive. And to think about insects uh, and their metabolism, uh, trying to create that heat, they go through an awful lot of food. So um, we're making sure that they have it, um, at least sustaining them. Um, I'm not sure we're making forward progress on the size of the, the populations uh, of bees. Um, again, because the, the queen seems to know when the weather breaks, it, it's really about flight. It's, it's kind of an inherent kind of thing that they, these insects have they know when the bees are flying that that's the time to start really laying eggs and, and really going for broke on the season to try to, to have a big cluster of bees to get a big honey crop. So we're still not there yet. We're sustaining them. We're keeping them going. And hopefully this weekend we, we, we sort of cross that bridge. And, you know, this this full moon in May here is, is often a real kick in the chops, but it usually is a, a cold snap associated with the, the, the uh, strawberry moon. So it's, it's interesting and it's it's predictable and certainly we 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 had some of that prediction come true again this year so it is what it is but steve I, i'm sorry uh yeah steve if you have any uh anything you'd like to jump in with please do don't, don't uh, hesitate vincent raised so many yeah. points there yeah. i think you might have some thoughts on it well i'm just happy to say for uh, you know what i'm seeing here in terms of the blossoms we have just a few apple trees on our farm and we've um, you know the some one that predates me and then a few that i've planted and we do have a really nice blossom set this year and last year was a pretty tough year for us um i haven't seen 
you know, it's been so cold recently, uh, there hasn't been a ton of bee activity, so I'm trying to watch that and hoping that the sun will come out to encourage them out, too. Um, but, yeah, we don't, you know, I always worry about the the, um, the orchards and, and the blossoms and the temperature and the and the pollination, you know, as, as uh, Vincent was describing, given what we've seen this, this spring uh, with all the variations in the weather. Yeah. Well, last year, we did, last year we did have a light bloom, and often in the orchards um, or in trees in general, you'll have a heavy bloom and then a year of rest, a recuperation by the the tree or the the plant, and then the following year another heavy bloom. So last year seemed to indicate it was a light bloom for most orchards in Connecticut, and uh, so the the heavy bloom that we're seeing this year is great. But again, whether the insects, um, bees included, can get to it. I mean, we have seen on the few good days um, we have had, um, and again, it's it's really marginal. It's 60, 65 degrees, and that's just about the temperature when bees are flying. Um, but sometimes, you know, we, we've been in the orchards, and, you know, the sun heats up the hive, and we have um, metal lids on the hives, and that metal heats up on the outside and, and creates some heat and a buffer zone. And... Um, they really do fly, even in colder weathers, and I would have even suspected. And um, it, it's great to see because it's – and then we look in the blossoms in the trees, and it's like, holy crow, they're really up there. And it's 55 degrees. and It's, it's, it's really remarkable. It's really remarkable that they're, they're doing it. It's almost as if they know the bloom is there, and they're going to try their best anyhow, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, just a, a word about the um, – you talked about the – the cross-pollination issue. What happens if you know the the blooms are not are not uh, manifest, and the bees you, you have the bees you've rented them out there in the orchards, and the cross-pollination doesn't occur? Is that do they is that a window that they've missed and they can't recapture the pollination, or what what happens in a yes, situation that, like that, that? That's correct. There won't be. Um, there may be some fruit set. Um, that occurs from wind and rain and other factors, um, but the, the the large crops that the insects bring, as far as um, fruit set and the fertilization of of uh, blossoms, will not happen, and the window is lost forever. So it's um, try again next year. <laughs> wow, that's that's yeah. pretty that's pretty amazing. So so these large orchards, uh, they will they will suffer significant loss this year if that happens right well they can and then the issue is that's why um they rely on the honeybee in particular because it's such a prolific um pollinator and there are so many bees in the hives um and you know when we were looking this year um you know like i said on those those warm days those warm two or three hours in an afternoon i mean the trees were covered with honeybees so i mean you're going to get some fruit from wind and rain but you're going to get a better fruit set from having the honeybees there. And I think we've got a, a chunk of it done. Uh, I, I don't, it's sort of an insurance policy that the orchards bring us in um, to make sure that the, the fruit set happens. And I think we did, I'm glad they did it because this year I think um, would have been a, a substantially uh, low crop level um, had the honeybees not been in there. So, yeah. Wow. Great. Interesting stuff. Well, I want to invite you, Vincent, to hang out a bit because we have an interesting sure. guest coming in right now. And uh, we promised to talk about the Farm Bill today because it's coming up for action in the fall. 
So we'd like to now bring on the air with us Alice Rundy, who is the coalition manager with the National Organic Coalition. Alice, are you with us? I'm here. Hi. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. I just want to mention that Alice is the coalition manager. As I said, she's uh, the National Alliance, uh, 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 coordinates the National Alliance of Organizations working to provide a, quote, Washington voice for farmers, ranchers, environmentalists, consumers, and others who are concerned with organic agriculture. Uh, Alice grew up in France, where she studied agronomy and agriculture and development. She conducted her master's research project with the Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture at Iowa State University in 2013, and has been working on sustainable agriculture issues ever since. She lives, oh my God, she lives all the way out there in Decorah, Iowa. Well, you're not there. Are you there today? Is that where you are? I am. Wow. Yes, I am. All right, a little, little taste of the uh, of the plain plain lands out there. So, um, Alice, thank you so much for joining us. We we did want to bring you in because you um, have been focusing on the farm bill. And that is a huge, monstrous piece of legislation, which has so many moving parts to it. Uh, and it's often, I, I guess, astounding to people that the organic part of that huge bill could actually be noticeable or, uh, you know, identifiable in any form. So let's, let's talk about the Farm Bill. Tell us what it is, why we should care about it. And, uh, you know, when it's coming up for vote and uh, just the basic background information about it. And we'll go from there. For sure. Um, so I think everybody should care about the farm bill because it impacts every farmer, but also everybody who touches food in any way. So an eater, um, a consumer, you're impacted by the farm bill. Um, so the farm bill is a legislation that is um, enacted every five years or so. And I'm saying or so because sometimes there's a bit of a lag between um, the advocacy work, the, the legislative writing work, the voting work, um, but it's about every five years. And it's a massive piece of legislation, um, like you said, which covers everything from supporting farmers to ensuring that those short of food don't go hungry. Um, and it's really the primary agriculture and food policy legislation of the federal government. Um, again, it deals with agriculture, food assistance programs, conservation, um, and a million other aspects of the USDA, so the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, it is the most important bill that we work on as a coalition because it is the primary agriculture and food policy legislation. Um, and like you said, uh, organic agriculture is not a huge part of the farm bill, although it has grown over the past farm bill legislation. Um, I'll just give some quick examples. When organic first started, there was no mention of organic in the farm bill, obviously. But then little by little, I think the organic community made some huge progress in advocating for integrating or support for organic agriculture in the farm bill. Um, for example, um, we've been able to advocate for cost share, so meaning that the cost of organic certification, which farmers have to pay to be certified organic, um, is split now they can ask for a reimbursement for a portion of that cost share and that's through the farm bill um there has been support for organic research through the farm bill um specifically through the organic research flagship program which we call organic agriculture research and extension initiative or rei that program was established in 2002 
And just in the last farm bill, we've secured baseline funding for this OREI program, which means that it will be integrated in each and every one of the farm bills moving forward. Um, so all that to say that there has been some increase in support in organic through the farm bill, and that, of course, that support is minuscule compared to the support for other types of agriculture in the farm bill. But that's what we're, we're here to do, which is to really advocate for more support for organic agriculture through the farm bill. And Steve Mono out there at Masara Farm, I know you're familiar with the, the National Organic Coalition and that you participated in the lobbying that took place several months ago around the farm bill. Maybe you have some thoughts or questions uh, for Alice on this. Well, I want to say hi and thank you, Alice, again for putting on you know a really wonderful opportunity for farmers like myself to come in to DC and and help you know put talking points together on why the farm bill is important. Um, so yeah, I was lucky enough to meet and work with Alice um, last month for a farmer fly-in, and you know it's a really an opportunity for um, for me to to sort of hone in some talking points and things as I get to talk to you know our senators. I met with uh, Senator Murphy and Senator Blumenthal's office, my own representative, uh, Congresswoman Deloro, uh, and and Representative Hayes as well, who's on the Agricultural Commission. You know, for for me to be able to go and tell them you know, what's happening on the ground and what's been my experience with programs that come through the farm bill um, was really important. And then, but, you know, I, I'm farming with my day-to-day. -day. I, I don't necessarily know all the details of, of what's happening throughout the country. So being able to work with, with NOFA and then work with with NOC, the National Organic Coalition, to help uh, put these points together was just really helpful for them being able to, um, you know, speak articulately with my, my representatives on, on what our priorities are, um, you know, both locally and then across the country. So I uh, really appreciated working with Alice on, on that. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder what your, th maybe both of you could assess what you thought the impact was of your lobbying effort, given, you know, and, uh, how many farmers came and, and, and what kind of sort of broad-based, you know, front that you guys mount there in Washington during that period? Sure. Um, I'll start and I'll also start by saying that it's a pleasure to be on with Steve. Steve is great and a wonderful asset and we were so glad that he came to um, the fly-in. Um, just a quick overview of like our last fly-in. So this was, we usually do a fly-in every year, but this was our first and first in fly-in since 2019. Um, we obviously not traveled because of the pandemic and its impacts. Um, so it was maybe a little smaller than we have done in the past because um, people were still a little tentative about flying uh, and traveling to DC, but we had uh, over, just over, yeah, just around 30, sorry, farmers, scientists and policy advocates and organic company representatives from our coalition. Um, and all of us together, we were able to meet with 56 congressional offices. And of those, 24 were with members of Congress or their staff who sit on House or Senate agriculture committees. Um, so these are really important meetings to have because these are the actual people who write the Farm Bill legislation that is going to be voted on. Um, and as far as impact, I think there are several ways to measure that the biggest measurement will be in the farm bill itself so we we don't know that yet but i think one of the very important things to do during these fines is to establish relationships with members of congress 
Um, and that's where having people who have the policy vision, but also the boots on the ground knowledge like Steve um, be crucial assets because they can speak from experience um, about these policies that we're, we're advocating for. Um, so I think our impact was huge because there were a lot of first time comers to this fly-in and a lot of people who met with their representatives for their first time, for the first time. Um, I think it's great when a member of Congress is not that familiar with organic agriculture, but gets to hear the impact of organic agriculture in their district and how important it is to support that for um, their local environment, economy, et cetera. Um, and that's all I'll say. I'd like to hear uh, what Steve says about what he thinks the impact he had with his meetings. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to share. I think, you know, the, the, the representatives always want to hear stories and want to have concrete examples that want to be able to name, you know, the, the town and the farm and the place that it's happening. So um, just before the, the fly-in that we did, uh, and of course I took the train, a nice little run from New Haven to D.C., easy enough uh, for me, but uh, the Senator Murphy held a, a roundtable in Connecticut. And so I got, you know, I got to meet with him and a number of, uh, of farmers throughout the state and our, our commissioner of agriculture. And, you know, what the Senator Murphy asked was, you know, what programs are you using? Why are you using them? Just just tell me. And so I got to say, you know, the first thing I said is the National Organic Program. You know, when we started our farm here at Masaro, uh, we were committed to growing organically. And we did the certification and it made us stand out. And this is why people, you know, chose to come to us. They, you know, they had maybe been buying from other local farms or did another CFA, but they really wanted organic. And, you know, that bit, that, that certification, you know, allowed them to make the choice to come to us. And more and more new and young farmers uh, are choosing to grow organically and we need support to do it. So we need to have more people in our state offices at the NRCS. Uh, Natural Resource Conservation Service to be able to provide the technical assistance. And we need cost share funding to do it. You know, one of the big um, barriers for folks is, is the training and the knowledge to do it and then the cost. So the Farm Bill can, can um, you know, relieve those barriers by providing the cost sharing uh, and providing the technical assistance. And so, uh, you know, our representatives need to hear that. And so to share that it's important for me as a grower to have the certification. It's important to my community uh, for people to be able to purchase organically. And we need support uh, because, you know, organic has continually been one of the biggest growing sectors in food uh, across the country. And that needs to be mirrored in the legislation and the funding. Um, so, you know, I, I felt it was really helpful to be able to share a story. You know, we're now in our 14th year and to say that organic has been part of our success. And, and it needs support so we can support more growers in Connecticut who are, are, are taking that route. So uh, I have a question for Allison, maybe for Steve also. Um, Alice, you mentioned like the number of people that you had lobbying in Washington for the Farm Bill. Um, what I wanted to ask is how... Um, were, there big, uh, were there big ag uh, lobbyists also? In in your sessions, or was it just specifically organic uh, oriented people? Um, so for the flying that we organized, it was all organic advocates. Obviously, it was members of our coalition who are um, very strongly supporting authentic organic agriculture. Um, and when we met with members of Congress, most of the meetings were one on one meetings either with the members of Congress themselves or their staff that deal with 
um, agriculture issues. Um, that said, <laughs> I remember, so I'm from Iowa, and um, I remember going to my meetings with my Iowa members of Congress, and I would leave my meeting and have um, a lobbyist from the Farm Bureau or a lobbyist from the Iowa Corn, Gro- Corn Growers Association right behind me. Hmm. Um, <laughs> so I think it's it's an interesting time to be on the Hill, right? Like all these all these agriculture organizations are lobbying for what they think their constituents are interested in in the farm bill. Um, and I, I was very appreciative that they give time to um, who they can. And I think that's why it's important for organizations like the National Organic Coalition and other organic organizations to really put their foot in the door and establish those relationships with members of Congress so that organic mm-hmm. agriculture is not forgotten um, because there's people on Capitol Hill advocating for other agriculture all the time. Yeah. Could you give us a sense of the kind of attention and funding that goes to big ag in the farm bill and what you're up against when you're trying to, as you said, get your foot in the door and just provide a little bit of a stream, hopefully ever increasing stream of funding and support for organic uh, agriculture and sustainable agriculture? Yeah, that's a really great question. And unfortunately, we don't have very precise numbers on the amount of funding that goes specifically to organic agriculture. And part of the reason it's kind of hard to give is because um, a lot of programs that support sustainable agriculture may also may support sustainable practices in general. And some organic farmers can benefit from those um, programs, but they're not specifically dedicated to organic agriculture, if that makes sense. And one of the things that we're advocating for in this farm bill is to make sure that these conservation programs specifically that are meant to support um, sustainable practices, environmentally friendly practices, climate smart practices, that those practice that those programs support um, organic farmers who have been using these methods since their certification or even before. Um, so all that to say that the the share that goes to organic agriculture specifically is minuscule. There is a small but a bit bigger amount of money that goes towards um, sustainable agriculture practices. And we're trying to make sure that organic farmers have access to um, those programs and funding. But what about big ag? I mean, they like what? How does the farm bill actually pour billions into big ag? And, and what what sectors of big ag are we talking about? Oh boy, that is such a huge question. Um, <laughs> and I wish I had hey, my little pie chart in front of me. But, we're talking about big uh, ag here. <laughs> it's gotta be huge. I know. <laughs> yeah, it is huge. And um, so first off, the majority of the funding for the farm bill goes towards um, nutritional assistance, right? And that's something that mostly Republicans, members of Congress are always trying to cut back on. Um, but that's the, the largest part, portion. And then when we're talking about the farming portion itself, then a large portion goes to the very traditional, what I'm calling traditional, conventional agricultural programs like crop insurance, um, other marketing support, marketing assistance um, that does not benefit organic farmers. And that's another thing that we've been um, discussing and working with the members of our coalition around is how do we make sure that the crop insurance program, which is clearly geared towards conventional agriculture, how do we make sure that organic farmers can benefit from from crop insurance? Um, the way the program is built now, 
crop insurances, not benefits, diversified farming operations, um, including organic operations. And we want to make sure that that, that changes is that there's the same level, at least the same level of support for people who use sustainable practices and have been using it for years. What is crop insurance? I mean, like, is it literally, you know, you, my strawberries didn't produce enough berries this year, so I get reimbursed for that? Is that a, sort of something yeah, along so those Yeah, so I wish it were like that. <laughs> it's more for big commodity crops like corn. So, for example, um, you plant a certain amount of corn and you have historical evidence that you've been able to produce X number of bushels um, a year on it and something happens the year that you planted and that you got your crop insurance, um, something happens to your crop and you can get reimbursed for the amount that you have historically been able to get. And so it encourages farmers to plant the same thing over and over again. Um, and it, mm-hmm. you can imagine that for um, an organic operation who has a very diversified farm, has different uh, crops every year or has a um, varied amount of crops on one plot every year, it's much harder to access. There has been um, legislation, so like there is a crop insurance program called the Whole Farm Revenue Protection, which encourages some diversification of crops, um, but it still doesn't work well for farmers. And I'm wondering if Steve has some, some insight on that. Yeah, yeah, I would say, you know, we don't um, participate in any kind of farm crop insurance our our insurance is being diversified. Our insurance is growing, you know, 40 different crops. And, and that has its challenges, too. We expect that in a year like last year where we were very hot and very dry for most of the summer, uh, that some crops aren't going to like that. You know, particularly in those conditions, um, our leafy greens really struggled. And we had to scrap multiple plantings of uh, lettuce that we would historically have. Uh, you know, in the year prior, it was extremely wet. And there's going to be conditions that, uh, you know, the, the, there's going to be crops that don't like those conditions. So, uh, but we've built in diversity by having and, and resilience and, and insurance to a degree by having a number of different crops and planning for and understanding that some are going to thrive and some are going to struggle depending on the conditions. And we do our best to manage that. Uh, but we're not relying on, you know, a, a, a dollar reimbursement. Uh, based on, you know, not having achieved our, our typical harvest. Hmm. I, I want to, I'm hoping Vincent is still with us, Vincent K of Swords into Plowshares. Honey, uh, Vincent, I am. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts on anything you've been hearing here? No, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a good thing, the organic push um, to get more than your foot in the door, but to really, uh, to push for this as a way of, uh, of living, not just of uh, reimbursement or, uh, you know, the, the finances of it all. But I mean, this is something that trickles down into um, our business of having healthy bees. And, um, you know, we applaud the efforts. We try to be involved in, in little ways that we can locally and state uh, agricultural programs. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's so needed on a national scale to have uh, the organic uh, coalition, so to speak, uh, represented and recognized and, uh, and in, when necessary funded, um, um, it's, it's extremely important because it's, it's, uh, it, it trickles down into so many different ways, uh, even locally with, with, you know, organizations like NOFA and 
all of our, our efforts to try to clean up the lawn issue and the water issue because of overuse of pesticides and fertilizers and so important that this really be managed and um, and and uh, accentuated the best in the best ways that we can and beekeepers certainly um, benefit from having a cleaner environment. Alice, as we come down the stretch here, because we only have minutes left, can you mention anything about what your organization, your coalition, does it have any position on the issue of hydroponic, which has been now included uh, in the uh, under the uh, egress of um, organic? You know, it's been hydroponic can be an organic uh, way of production. Does did, was there any conversation about that in the in this lobbying effort? Um, so our coalition believes firmly that organic agriculture is a soil based agriculture, and that hydroponics should not be certified organic. Um, it did not come up in our lobbying activities for this farm bill because um, we we believed for this farm bill that this was not where we needed to focus our efforts. It felt like um, it would, the decisions had already been made and there are other ways um, that we will advocate for soil-based agriculture. Um, yeah. That's All right. Say about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you for that. And, and as we close here, uh, Alice, any last thoughts on, you know, how the, this your coalition, which includes uh, not only um, producers of organics, but consumers and marketers of organic products, uh, how you can move forward uh, beyond the effort you made in Washington. And we have, I will tell you, um, a minute and a half left. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be quick. Um, I think I want to make sure that everybody knows that they can engage in this process, whether they're a farmer or a consumer, anybody should and can engage. Um, I recommend people reach out to their local organic organization, whether that's your NOFA, um, reach out to your farmers, see what kind of support they believe is needed at the local, at the state and federal level. Um, and then I'll put a plug in for our website, www.nationalorganiccoalition.org. You can subscribe to our newsletter to really keep up to date on policies that we're advocating for, suggested calls to action, etc. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Alice Rundy. From, uh, she's the uh, coalition or, uh, manager of the National Organic Coalition. Thank you, Steve Munno from Asaro Farm. Thank you, Vincent Kay, Swords and Plushers Honey. Chris Ferrio, thanks so much. Sure. My, name, my name is Richard Hill. This has been the Organic Farm Stand. We'll be back in two weeks. Thank you. Well, I can tell by the look in your eyes, baby. You need the one thing that I can describe. This is the Gaia-Gram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. In a major victory for climate accountability, dozens of climate lawsuits across the U.S. can advance towards trial after the Supreme Court last week declined to hear Big Oil's pleas to escape justice in state courts, where polluters are more likely to prevail. Center for Climate Integrity President Richard Wiles said big oil companies have been desperate to avoid trials in state courts, where they will be 
forced to defend their climate lies in front of juries, and today the Supreme Court declined to bail them out. Mississippi River flooding has been rising toward a crest recently in the upper Midwest and has reached levels not seen in over 20 years in parts of the upper Mississippi Valley. Spring flooding is typical in the northern and western U.S. as winter snowpack melts and runs into lakes, creeks, streams, and larger rivers. But this spring, it's reaching higher levels in some areas due to a number of factors. First, it was a snow season for the record books. This persistent snow established a heavy snowpack heading into spring, and March's chill held the snowpack in place, and then an April warm spell rapidly melted the snow. A state of emergency was declared in Virginia Beach last Sunday night as a violent tornado barreled through the city, leaving between 50 and 100 homes damaged. Alarming videos of the disaster shared on social media show homeowners sheltering inside as the twister swept through the coastal area, leaving mass devastation in its wake. The Spanish government has advised people to take extra care as the drought-stricken country experiences record-breaking temperatures that was predicted to result in an unprecedented April temperature of 102 degrees Fahrenheit in parts of Andalusia last week. The Spanish Prime Minister told Parliament last week that the government sees drought as one of the central political and territorial debates of our country over the coming years. Last year was the hottest year on record for Spain. According to PBS, a new strain of bird flu, also known as avian influenza, is spreading across the United States. The H5N1 strain is causing a variety of new problems and has killed more than 58 million birds. One scientist said the variant is wiping out everything in numbers we've never seen before. A new study from Cambridge reports that the full extent of the damage from India's sizzling heat that's causing more deaths, illnesses, school shutdowns, and crop failures is underestimated by lawmakers and slowing the nation's development. Extreme heat is placing 80% of India's 1.4 billion population in danger. ABC has a story that Egypt has long been called the gift of the Nile as it has historically depended on the river for survival. But over the next two years, experts say Egyptians could approach a state of absolute water scarcity. Climate change, population growth, and a regional fight for water resources are all contributing to the risk of water imbalance. About 90% of Egypt's population lives along the Nile River, with the waterway providing nearly all Egyptians with drinking water. The country is facing an annual water deficit and is estimated to be categorized as water scarce by 2025. Last month, Deutsche Bank announced it has committed $500 billion to ESG's Environmental, Social and Governance Finance and Sustainable Investment. Germany's 350.org stated that while this was good to see, we collectively demand a faster and deeper transition that ends fossil fuel finance for good. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released its latest report last month, a synthesis of all the work it's done over the past few years to summarize the latest climate science. The report stated in part, Our children's world will be different from ours, our grandchildren's world even more so. The crucial question is, to what extent will that world be livable? It noted that if urgent action is taken to tackle the climate crisis, a livable future can still be possible. This was the Gaiagram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. 
WPKN programming is supported by Novamont, a Connecticut company, manufacturers of Matterbee, a family of completely biodegradable and compostable bioplastics, which are being used to provide low environmental impact solutions for everyday products. More information is available at materbi.com slash en. This is WPKN. 